Were there ever any assignments or places that you went to that made you think, what am I doing? Like, how did I get here? This is not going well, or this is, this is scary. Or was it always just like, this is amazing. I made all the right choices. So I actually almost died in Aruba. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> yeah, that escalated quickly. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Whittle Podcast, the show about food, travel, culture, and in today's episode, all three of those things combined because we are talking with writer and avid traveler, Jonica Reed. Jonica has written for publications such as Essence, Ebony, HuffPost, among others, and today we get to talk about how travel affects your identity, how you view yourself, how you view others, and how it affects your understanding of your place in the world. So really great conversation with Jonica. She has some really cool things to say and also some really fun stories to tell. So I know you guys are going to enjoy this interview. Real quick before we get into it, if you are enjoying this podcast, if you like this podcast at all, if you want to hear more episodes of this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe either on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify um, or add it to your favorites on Anchor. It really does help this show out so more people can find it. So just search for Wero, W-E-R-O, on Apple Podcasts. You can leave a review there. If you don't want to use any of those apps, you can always find all of the episodes at WeroKitchen.com. That's W-E-R-O Kitchen.com. And then just click on the podcast tab. So now that that's out of the way, let's get into the interview. So you're originally from Fort Worth, Southside. Born and raised on the Southside, as I like to say, the actual Southside, not the near Southside. So <laughs> historic Southside and then the Morningside area, I also like to say, where the black people live. I went to Odie Wide High School, graduated in 2000, but had spent all of my formative years really trying to get out of Fort Worth. Mm. So I left and immediately moved to Virginia. I attended Hampton University, which is a historically black college and university in Hampton, Virginia. And then from there, I did a 16-year trip north on I-95. So lived in various cities in Virginia, D.C., Philly, New York, Boston, back to D.C., and just sort of hopping around Mm. what they call the I-95 corridor. Wow, so that's a that's a long trip. <laughs> so as you're as you're kind of hopping around, um, like how long are you staying in each each of these places? A lot of the cities were stops at educational institutions, so those averaged anywhere from two to four years. The longest place I lived was D.C., um, which is probably my favorite place because it gives you all of the amenities and culture of a city, but as far as the actual size, geographic area, mm-hmm. it's a town. Okay. Um, that kind of, in some ways, reminds me of Fort Worth. And the shortest stint that I had was six months in Philadelphia. Loved the culture, architecture, loved my loft, just could not catch a vibe with the people. <laughs> <laughs> so I was moved there initially for a job opportunity. I was vice president of engagement for a hybrid marketing agency, Mm -hmm. and the city of Philadelphia was one of our clients. Mm -hmm. We were doing an art-focused tourism campaign for Visit Philadelphia, and then um, my other biggest client was Dell at the time. So was there for six months and then had to convince them, hey, guys, I totally have to remote work. (laughs) I can't be in Philly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> Can't not feeling do it. it. Yeah. Not feeling it. Not feeling it at all. Um, and then I moved back to Fort Worth in 2016, which is something that I swore I would never do. So so why, why did you come back? What brought you back here? Initially, love brought uh, me back as those things tend to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but that ended and I ended up staying sort of as a personal reckon. Reckoning where I felt like I needed to reconcile my relationship with home, Mm. possibly do a deep dive into these feelings I have about my family, 
Um, and then also Tarrant County, you know, is a battleground mm. politically. So I felt like if people like me are always leaving, there's no one to really anchor the change sure. here. So also a pull toward civic duty, I guess. Yeah. 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 And then you've done some international travel as well. Yes. So actually my international travel started in the seventh grade middle school. I attended Dunbar Middle and one of my teachers, two of my teachers, actually my English teacher, Jennifer Seavey and my Spanish teacher, Mrs. Tremue. Um, Mrs. Tremue was involved in Sister Cities, which mm. is still a huge thing here in Fort Worth. And then well, Ms. what is for because there's a lot of people who don't know what Sister Cities oh, is. So Sister Cities, uh, and this is going to be a really like a clumsy explanation because as an adult, I'm not involved yeah. with them. <laughs> but basically, certain cities in the states uh, literally partner with cities internationally and develop this sister cities relationship. And for students, there's study abroad exchange opportunities, uh, families in Fort Worth may host students mm-hmm. from other sister cities. And it's just sort of a global education, travel-focused organization. And so I traveled with Mrs. Tremue and Mrs. Seavey on study abroad trips in middle school. Nice. And so that's where I sort of got the travel bug. And I knew in seventh grade, I knew I wanted to be global. Mm. So I wanted to explore the rest of the United States, but I also wanted to be a person that moved around the world. Yeah. And then I also knew that I wanted to think for a living, whether that was writing or something in education, but I knew very early on that I wanted to live a life of the mind. Mm. So those things guided me through high school and through college. I studied abroad in Brazil in college. And then in 2009, I was actually working as a grant writer at a nonprofit in D.C., and I was on the D.C. Commission for Women, and Essence Magazine did a conference in D.C., and I, for whatever reason, ended up giving the welcome on behalf of the mayor at the time, <laughs> Adrian Fenty, and um, in the green room met a lot of the editors at Essence, mm. and I became really good friends with an editor at Essence, Corey Murray, who I owe so much to. And I just kind of casually mentioned one day at dinner, like, I have all this vacation time I haven't used, and I really want to travel more. I think that was in February. And then a couple of months later, she emailed me and said she had been invited on a trip to South Africa to cover the Cape Town Jazz Festival, but that she couldn't go. And would that be something I was interested in? And of course, I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I had already been blogging at the time for a while. And then I just literally decided, in order to take this opportunity, I have to become a freelance writer. There you go. <laughs> and like all millennials, I also decided that instead of using three weeks vacation time, I would just quit my job <laughs> and go to South Africa. <laughs> Literally, like it escalated in like a week from this vacation situation to nope, this is what we're doing, doing. Yep. yep. And That's so just what we do. We, is, we quit our jobs we, and we go I, abroad for an undetermined amount of time. I remember my boss go like calling me into her office, being like, "Can we talk about this? Yeah. Like, <laughs> this is a very abrupt breakup. Yeah. Like, can we discuss this?" And I was like, "No, I'm good. I'm totally good." So I went to South Africa and. Literally, things just started happening. Mm. So from 2009 until about 2012, I was traveling on average 200,000 miles a year. Wow. Yeah, mostly on assignment, and it was a whirlwind. I Mm. probably could not go at that speed now, (laughs) but at the time, I just sort of Shonda Rhimes has that book, The Year of Yes. Mm -hmm. So I just said yes to everything. Yeah. Everything that came through my inbox, sure, I'll be there. Yeah. Hong Kong, yes, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was all over the world and it's almost, I would say, finishing school for me. Mm. Like, like sort of the, not final chapter, because I'm contemplating more schooling later in life because I'm crazy, (laughs) but um, 
it really sort of brought together a lot of the theory and things that I have been thinking about and curious about for my entire life. And it's where during that journey, I learned how to have a creative career Mm. and how to, you know, be a multi-hyphenate and put together all of these pieces to build the life that I want. Yeah. So as you're, you know, traveling around and kind of doing... In, I mean, in some ways, you, you know, you'd already been writing and blogging, but kind of doing a new thing of just like, I'm traveling and I'm mm-hmm. writing. This is like my job now. Mm-hmm. Were there ever any assignments or places that you went to that made you think, what am I doing? Like, how did I get here? This is not going well, or this is, this is scary. Or was it always just like, this is amazing. I made all the right choices. So I actually almost died in Aruba. Oh, well, that's, yeah, that escalated quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You would think I was on an adventure trip. I was not. I was actually there for a press trip for the opening of some new Marriott property. And one of the activities that they had planned were we were driving in these Tom cars. I don't know if you're familiar with Tom cars. They look like Jeeps. Okay. Completely open, no doors, no roof. But the wheels are supposed to accommodate for oh, so they dips have just, in the ground, I gotcha. yeah. holes, whatnot. And they're used typically in war zones, my understanding. Okay. Like <laughs> people who are driving around doing recon yeah. use these Tom cars. Okay. But tourism companies, the same way you would go jet skiing, decided Tom cars would be an interesting off-roading experience. Mm. So I remember being completely not down with going on this activity (laughs) just because it's, I'm a low stress person, so I don't voluntarily sign up for things that I think will be stressful like roller coasters. Okay. I don't need that type of adrenaline in my life. So I was kind of telling the group, like, I'll just hang back and like be at the pool. Yeah. And the PR director of the hotel was kind of guilt tripping me. Like, we've planned this great excursion. You've got to come. So, okay, fine. So then we get to the place, and most of the writers at the time on this trip, we all were based in L.A., New York, but I was the only one from a, like, originally from a driving state. Mm. So they were like, you're from Texas. You can drive this off-roading vehicle. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I drive a Prius. Yeah. I, what are you? No. <laughs> um, but I end up driving. And so we are going up to the up the steepest hill hill in Aruba <laughs> to this point where we're supposed to get this amazing view. And we're going up the hill and the Tom car literally shuts off. Oh no. Like just like wheel dead. is locked, no. nothing is happening. <laughs> we're like at a almost 90 degree <laughs> incline and we start rolling backwards oh my gosh. down the hill. And we had turned a curve going up the hill. So a direct descent <laughs> would literally have landed us off of the cliff. Yeah. And the only reason we did not fly off the cliff is there was a boulder. And so the right back wheel hit the boulder and we flipped over. Oh my gosh. Yes. I'm like stressed out just So we to had on like the, in the Tom cars they have the same sort of full body seat belts mm-hmm. when you get mm-hmm. on a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're just suspended in space. Oh my gosh. Um we were the back of the line. Like there were like eight Tom cars, we were the back one. So yeah. it took the group a minute to realize <laughs> that we had even <laughs> that we were no longer with them. Oh no. <laughs> it was horrible. So, um, so you just had to like hang there upside down? No, the whole thing was horrible. <laughs> One of the writers who was from Philly, was a new mom, mm. like had a six-month-old baby at home. Yeah. So we're all just literally thinking we're going to die. So I remember them. they had to cut us out of the, um, the seat belts, the body belts. I had a concussion, ended oh, up wow. in an ER. And yeah, so it was a horrific experience, but you know, everything is hashtag research. Okay. And so that was the first time that I got a real life understanding of the disparities in healthcare. Oh, okay. <laughs> because I went into this hospital, I was a freelancer, late 20s, no health insurance. Mm, can <laughs> <And> relate. <laughs> I got a CTI treated 
the whole thing, hospital was immaculate, and the bill was like fifty dollars. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, this is what <laughs> you know. The, the theory that I've read, this is the real life mm-hmm. situation with yeah. healthcare. Because had I been in the states, you know, I would have also had the additional stress of worrying about what is my bill going to look like yeah. at the end of the day. Like Fifty thousand so, dollars. We survived. As it turned out, that particular Tom car had just come back from maintenance. Mm. So they'd had some problems with it before, <laughs> and it was supposed to be repaired, but they didn't test it before they gave before. it to our group. It wow. had just gotten back. So, so you got the test drive. The, the <laughs> owner of the resort, or no, the owner of the tour operating company was afraid that we were going to sue. <laughs> and so I actually got another free trip to Aruba. <laughs> You're like, that's that not I what I wanted, of, though. I took one of my good girlfriends on uh, with no Tom Carr excursions ever okay. again. Um, but yeah, so that was one of the things where I'm like, why am I here? Yeah. Aruba was never on my bucket list. Like, you know, but I have been mm. saying yes to everything. Sure. So actually, after that, I became a little bit more discerning about okay. <laughs> what I would sign up for and, you know, sort of sticking to my boundaries if I was on a trip and it was just an activity that was not up my alley. I no longer let people convince me yeah. to do things that I know I'm really not interested in doing. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. But we lived. We're alive. Yeah, it's you're great. here today <laughs> to tell the story. So. Yes. Um. And so, um, I guess I mean, there's two things that I wanted to ask you about, um, and they don't have to go in any particular order, but um, you were telling me a little bit about um, some research that you're doing currently um, for Duke University about Elizabeth Catlett. Yes. Um, and kind of a little bit of travel involved in that, too. So tell us a little bit about that, and then I want to get into what is it like living back in Fort Worth, having had all of these amazing and also including near-death experiences, <laughs> and how does that kind of shape the way that you view the city now? So, uh, three years ago, I was at a symposium at the Met Museum in New York around the Curie James Marshall Mastery Show, and there were lots of different presenters, and there was a specific one that he had a slide. One of his slides was, it was literally a blip in his presentation on Elizabeth Catlett and her time in Mexico City. Mexico City is one of my favorite places in the world, Mm. but I'd always had an uncomfortable feeling about it because most of the places that I've gravitated through in my work are places where black people can see themselves Mm -hmm. or there's a African-American expat culture there. And Mm -hmm. that just wasn't the case in Mexico City until I learned. (laughs) And I I was somewhat familiar with Elizabeth Catlett. Um, One of my aunts, Deborah Peoples, whose office is actually on this block, she has some of her work in Mm. her home here in Fort Worth. So I was familiar with her as an artist, um, but not about her life as an expat. And so a, a light bulb just went off on in my head during this presentation. And I sort of went down a rabbit hole as one does. And so I am working on a research project at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke, also known as CDS, around Elizabeth Catlett and her life in Mexico City and the role of place in her work. Mm. And it's interesting because leaving the States, actually, her work became more grounded in her Black identity. So it's this interesting paradigm of um, being ethnically grounded while also, you know, being sort of transcultural Hmm. at the same time. And through my research, I just learned we had a lot of parallels in our lives. So she was initially married to the artist Charles White. In 1946, what took her to Mexico City initially was a fellowship. Um, Sometimes when you're a woman that contains as many multitudes as myself and Elizabeth Catlett, (laughs) the marriage can be a little uh, confining. Mm. Um, And I imagine for her also the identity of her mirrored with her husband, who's also an artist. So she came back to the States, divorced him, moved to Mexico City, fell in love with 
someone else and, you know, continued living her life there. So as I learned about her story, there were many parallels to things that were going on in my life. She taught at Hampton University, which is where I went to undergrad. She actually taught a summer at Prairie View A&M University, which is here in Texas. So there was just a lot of parallels. And then the research project grew to a larger exploration of the tradition of black women's travel as part of their creative practice. And mm. so you have a long lineage of writers like Zora Neale Hurston, um, present day Imani Perry, who's a professor at Princeton, where travel, whether they're doing ethnography, sociology, art, visual art, um, the relationship of place, and how that's reflected in their work, and then also how they see themselves. Mm. So, and one of the parallels for me and my travels, so you, traveling really helps you understand that identity is not this fixed thing yeah. at all. Yeah. And so in the States, I'm, I am a black woman. Other black people can look at me they know I'm a black woman, even though I am fair-skinned. As soon as I leave America, my <laughs> this identity that I am very much wedded to, proud of, grounded in, all of a sudden there are all these question marks surrounding mm. it and lots of people asking questions, sometimes offensive questions. Mm. In Sao Paulo, I had a meeting with an executive of one of the largest luxury hotel chains in South America, and I guess he'd read my bio and a lot of the publications I've written for, Essence, Ebony, American Airlines used to have a vertical called Black Atlas, which was a hybrid content advertising campaign focused on the black traveler that I worked on for two years, which is actually why I was in Brazil. And he sat across from me and was like, why do you call yourself black when you have an option to call yourself something else hmm. that would be better? Wow. Wow, was better. Like, no, literally, he's like, you are downgrading yourself. Wow. Aesthetically, phenotypically, you could read in other cultures as mm. something else, and that could be a business advantage for you. Wow. Over breakfast. Um, and so your identity is not this fixed thing. Also, as an American, as soon as you leave the state, so here you may feel like a third or second-class citizen. But when you leave the States, you gain what I call passport privilege because mm. you're an American. Yes. So if I'm in Europe, Europeans delineate between a black American and an African immigrant in London. Mm. So mm -hmm. I'm now, I've been upgraded, quote unquote, yeah. as the PR executive would have said. And I've now acquired a level of privilege that I don't have at home. Mm. And so the transition, you have to make very quickly what you're going to decide to do yeah. with that. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that ends up, if you're a writer, if you're a, any person that has a creative output, those questions that you're constantly having to answer and then ask yourself, obviously bleeds into your work. So that's yeah. what I'm exploring. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. Um, <clears throat> and just kind of talking about um, how you even view yourself while traveling um, I think, at least for me, when I traveled for the first time, there was a lot of that, of just like, oh, like, the way that, the way that I used to view the world is now different, and the way that I view myself in the world is now different, and then um, the way that you understand, because I feel like in the States, we have such a very shallow level of knowledge of what other people that are not Americans are like. And then when you go and you experience it and you're like, oh, this is very, you don't understand the depth of what other cultures mm -hmm. and what other people are like until you kind of find yourself swimming in it and, uh, and are confused by it and think that you understand things that you don't. And then, and then also have the same thing, kind of like what you're talking about a little bit too, of people with that same very shallow level of knowledge of what Americans are like, mm -hmm. um, and in your case, you know, African-Americans and, and black women, um, and just being confronted with that um, is in a lot of ways really challenging, but I think is, is a really interesting point of 
kind of research, something that you're exploring. Even in the States, a lot of people, they don't have context for much. I did 23andMe, I guess now two years ago. And so like most black people who are the descendants of slaves, there are other things in my background. So I'm about 33% European according to 23andMe. Mm -hmm. And I had a colleague in a summer session at Duke ask me very excitedly, like, are you, so are you going to start saying you're biracial? And so I head down on my laptop. No, she's still very (laughs) excited. Oh my God, why not? It's so interesting, you know, exotic. And I just replied, slavery. Mm. And it hit her. Like it never occurred to her that this 33% wasn't the product of some blissful love affair or (laughs) interracial marriage or, you know, she's, she, no context for it. Mm-hmm. And so also when people push the question, where are you originally from? Mm. Fort Worth. Yeah. No, no, no. Where are your, <laughs> your parents? Fort Worth. Grandparents, Fort Worth. Great, great. East Texas plantation. Then, oh, no, I don't actually know where my yeah. roots are. Yeah. And so even just the conversation around identity has a different emotion. So mm. 23 and me did not excite me the way that it would excite someone else who's just doing a genealogy project to fill in their family tree. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's actually a more painful exploration and even getting the matching emails like this is your cousin Brad in Kansas. Okay. And there's no PC way to say this. Brad looks like his grandfather would have lynched my grandfather. Wow. I actually had to turn the notifications off because mm. I wasn't prepared for the emotional <laughs> response that yeah. I was having yeah. to these emails. And on Brad's end, I'm sure he's just like, oh, I found a cousin. Yeah. But not thinking about the context of how exactly did we come mm. to be related. Yeah. And it sort of unearths those, unearths those feelings. Um, so just your identity in general, whether home, abroad, is... I feel as as a black woman, and so I'm also negotiating my gender, my race, my nationality, all at the same time. It can get very complicated <laughs> very yeah. quickly, yeah. but it's something that you you do have to explore, especially in these times. And then now I'm sort of doing a reverse exploration of that and experiencing reverse culture shock, moving back to Fort Worth. Yeah, so what is so what is that like now having lived in different cities across America and having traveled to all these different countries and having had all these different experiences with different cultures and different kinds of people and then coming back to the place that you grew up in that you weren't even extremely fond of um how has that experience been? So I moved back to the place that I grew up in that I was not necessarily extremely fond of in 2016, which was a very interesting election year. Mm, yeah. So my timing <laughs> <It sure> was. <laughs> was, depending on how you look at it, impeccable or really awful. Mm. So one very simple example of culture shock I'll give you. So of course, moving back, I quickly was trying to seek out places, vibes, people where I could kind of pretend in my mind like I was in Brooklyn mm. or the Lower East Side. Okay. So I'm like, great, Fort Worth has hipster coffee shops now. Yeah. This is awesome. <laughs> and they look just like the ones I'm used to. This is going to be amazing. So I would pack up my laptop. I'd go sit down. And so in any other city I'm in, as other people would sit down, they are discussing startup ideas. Uh, writing projects, book proposals. Oh my God, my landlord said I have to move in two weeks. I have to find a new apartment in New York. These types of conversations. And so I would watch people sit down who had the aesthetic, the hipster aesthetic, full on, cold brew, then Bible study. And I used to literally like take pictures and text it to my friends. Like, <laughs> not that there's, there's nothing wrong with Bible study. It was just literally a sort of real life 3D example of a difference in values or even Mm -hmm. what people socialize around, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. No one on the East Coast is asking you, where do you worship? 
Uh-huh. Like the first time you meet them or what church do you go to? Yeah. So that was also overhearing sometimes political conversations that would upset me mm-hmm. around, you know, gender, sexuality, just overhearing these things. I used to call it sort of audible assaults mm. around you because mm-hmm. it's feeding into you. And so it took me almost two years <laughs> to somewhat adjust to to those changes and to that difference in pace, mm-hmm. the difference in pace, um, particularly in comparison to the cities that I've lived in. And I realized, I guess I became a coastal elite. Okay. As all the think piece writers call people on the coast <laughs> post-2016 election. So I became a coastal elite where I was operating in a bubble where everyone around me was engaged in doing work that I personally found interesting, whether that mm-hmm. was in the arts or they're in graduate school doing doctoral studies around a, a subject that I find interesting. And so that was my world. And so coming back to Fort Worth, I actually re-encountered every single frustration that I had as a kid. The difference is now I have the language to Mm -hmm. actually articulate on a deeper level why those differences exist. Mm -hmm. And Fort Worth is an interesting place because it's too civil, I think. Okay. Mm-hmm. In in what way? It's too civil. So Fort Worth always prides itself in saying, you know, during the civil rights movement, we were able, we, we had no riots. We didn't, no boycotts. We were able to sort of reach an understanding. Um, and that understanding obviously was, okay, all you guys move east of I-35 and we'll be over here on the west side. Yeah. And yeah. we won't have to have race riots. <laughs> yeah. We'll just calmly, civilly segregate ourselves, Mm. which literally is still the geographical makeup of the city. And so I think uh, the civility sometimes actually prevents progress because no one wants to stir the pot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because we want to be able to say, we get along, we do business, we shake hands. Yeah. And so if you're disruptive to that system... In Fort Worth, I feel like you get iced out. And obviously, I could not have articulated that as a child, but I absolutely observed it. I was mm-hmm. very active in the NAACP as a child, had already started traveling. And so I just didn't feel a lot of forward movement in Fort Worth, not just around economic development or, you know, do we have new restaurants, but mm-hmm. really... The progression of thoughts, mm-hmm. I didn't feel, um, and so I would often when I first moved back. I remember I actually either posted this on Facebook and or tweeted it that I was emotionally drained and intellectually starved, mm. and that's often how I feel here. Yeah, and that is um, difficult at times, but I've travel helps. Mm-hmm. a ton and I get away to things like I just got back from Vancouver where I attended TED which is an you know amazing place it's basically you're on a braincation with other adults mm-hmm. who want to be engaged in deep thought for 12 hours a day <laughs> <laughs> and so that level of engagement I guess is what I've been used to so now I'm working on how do I cultivate that here? Mm. How do I, you know, as the kids say, keep that energy? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep that same energy once I'm home yeah. and then help cultivate it for other people. Yeah. And so I'm very much sort of entrenched in that part of my journey right now mm. and sort of really trying to find a community that um, I don't feel like I'm losing brain cells. Mm-hmm. Every day. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel that I'm losing brain cells. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've kind of talked about how, you know, travel can be very formative in expanding how you view the world mm-hmm. and also um, 
thinking differently about things and thinking deeply about things for people who maybe don't have as many opportunities to travel or don't have those kinds of um, yeah opportunities, what are some things that they can do if they're interested, if they're curious, if they, they want to know more about more um, besides travel? What, it, what are things that people can do where they are to kind of get that bug in a way? Read. Mm-hmm. Reading is actually the first time I remember thinking I need to go to that place. Honestly, was reading the Chronicles of Narnia. Okay. Seriously. Yeah. They were British. And I was interested in these, because even the way the architecture was described, the door, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously our homes here were not like that. I wanted to go where the characters, not when they were in Narnia, but Mm -hmm. their home, like when they went through the door, I wanted to visit that place. And so books allow you, they transport you into other worlds, Mm. other viewpoints. And so I would first say, read everything that you can, uh, fiction, nonfiction, memoirs, um, act. There are a lot of actually good, more creatively written books now coming out by academics that help you explore issues. Imani Perry actually just announced that her next book is an exploration of, you know, being black in the South. And she, it's really a travel project Mm. and reading, reading and movies, documentaries, Netflix is amazing. I wonder who I would be if Netflix had been around when I was in college, (laughs) because I would have... The amount of content I would have devoured, it Mm -hmm. probably would have been unhealthy Mm. at that point in my life because I was so thirsty for knowledge. But we have Netflix. Um, You have the Travel Channel. My grandfather always, for some reason, was watching National Geographic. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I just remember, always National Geographic. And then in Fort Worth, for example, last week, I went to see Porgy and Bess Mm -hmm. at the Bass Hall. And I got to- opera. Which is an opera, yes. Gershwin opera. And I got to spend some time with the cast members who are from all over. Um, the opera, you know, auditions or invites different people. And one, the, the lead who played Bess, um, Indira Mahajan, she is black and Indian, East Indian. And we had, you know, almost an hour-long conversation about, you know, the role of travel in in her life, what it was like, you know, being in residence, playing Bess in Fort Worth. And so that was an opportunity for me to satiate, you know, my desire for that engagement (laughs) while being in Fort Worth. So I've now sort of picked up on catching people when they come to Fort Worth Mm. or, you know, when they come to the Metroplex, I'm going to... uh, Ewing, who's a professor at University of Chicago, also writes Marvel comic books and poetry books, and she's like 30, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is doing a lecture in Dallas on Thursday. Mm. So I'm making it a point to attend that. So finding things locally that expand your view. Museums are also great for that. Um, the Modern, the Kimball, the Eamon Carter Always, um, Eamon Carter has an amazing Gordon Parks exhibit that is going up in September, I believe. And so those are just opportunities locally where you really... And those are the things I did as a, as a kid. My first internship was at The Modern. <laughs> so that's kind of come full circle. And the first job that I ever got, I lied about my age to work <laughs> at the old Barnes & Nobles that was where the Cheesecake Factory is downtown. <laughs> because I was like, I, every, all of my other friends were... We're going to work at the mall because we want discounts on clothes. And I was like, I need that 50% book (laughs) Book discount (laughs) at 15. I'm like, yes. And I want it to be downtown because for me, visually, at the time, I was like, I can psych myself like I'm in a big city because I'm, you know, I'm downtown. I'm walking to work. Interesting people are going to the Bass Hall then coming to Barnes and Nobles. So I felt a bit more cosmopolitan in Mm -hmm. that. And no, but it worked. It really, 
like in theory worked. Yeah. Um, and you know, I still spend all of my time in bookstores, coffee shops, <laughs> all of all of the things that I did. I'm literally exactly the person that ten year old me was like fighting for. Yeah. 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 That and that's cool that you knew from like such a young age kind mm-hmm. of what I tell adults all the time, kids be knowing. Like, (laughs) we really just, we, like, they don't, they don't know the steps, right? Mm -hmm. They don't know what that thing they desire is going to require of them. Mm -hmm. That's what we know. And I think sometimes that's what makes us discourage them because we know whatever, but they know, like, kids know. We just spend a lot of our energy trying to convince them otherwise. But honestly, the time I feel like where you really know where your curiosity is leading you is that period of life where all you have to be concerned with is your curiosity because mm-hmm. you're not bogged down by any responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And so, and you also don't necessarily, you're fearless in a sense mm. because you haven't, you know, faced professional rejection or whatever. So as a child, <laughs> it's very easy to say, I like to do this. I know how it feels. Like I feel like children probably reach flow state easier than adults, right? Mm-hmm. I know that when I'm fully engaged in this thing, I feel alive. Yeah. And I want to do that when I grow up. That's yeah. a very simple statement for a child, an easy statement for a child to make. Whereas an adult has many more insecurities and impediments in their way yeah. from saying, no, that's the thing I want to do and I'm going to go do it. Because the adult is aware of everything that that takes so it's not just a simple statement but kids be knowing yeah totally and i think too just as as adults or even you know pre-adults like um just as we get a little bit older there's a lot of people just come at you with a ton of questions that are kind of discouraging so you you know as a kid you can say i want to do x y and z and people say that's great and then as you get older it becomes well how are you going to do that and mm-hmm. what about this? And this is going to be hard. And well, have you ever tried this? And there's just a lot of things that, well, of course, those things are real and you have to deal with them. Um, but sometimes being berated by a ton of questions about something that you're still exploring can be really discouraging for a lot of people. I don't know if you're, are you familiar with Brene Brown? I'm not. So she wrote a book called Daring Greatly. She, oh, is this the one you were telling me about? And she's done a lot of TED yes. Talks, but she has a Netflix Netflix special that came out, I think, in the last couple of weeks. And this quote that she says, I think, is a, is derivative from something, because I think I saw something, it wasn't Thomas Jefferson, because I would never reference Thomas Jefferson because slavery. But another <laughs> president said about, basically, don't take questions and commentary from people who aren't in the ring. Yes. Right? Yeah, so now if it's another more. person that has like if Oprah's asking you questions, yes, let's yeah. let's 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 have a deep dive yeah. here. <laughs> let's explore what it's going to take for me to make my make my dreams come true because you're a person who probably is asking them to help me develop a roadmap, mm-hmm. not to discourage me mm-hmm. because you've done this thing. Yeah. Um so please if you work a 9 to 5, which I respect greatly, but you're not in this ring. We're not mm-hmm. in the same ring. And that you're probably more likely, you're asking these questions because you want me to see that this thing that I desire is not possible mm. because you didn't find a way to make your thing possible. Mm. And I found that in my own upbringing, in my family, most people, you know, did all the things you're supposed to do go to college, get a job, buy a house, have a couple kids, live in Fort Worth. And so here I come with all of these things that challenge that. And I actually, with my own mother, as an adult, realized that my dreams to her, me just articulating these things that I wanted to do that I would not budge from, was an assault to the decisions that she had made, Mm. Hmm. the things that she had not done. And so we actually had a conversation in my late 20s where she actually told me, like, I, in one way, I, like, admire you because mm-hmm. you, you know, didn't have kids young. You didn't get stuck, essentially. But then there's also resentment mm. there. Yeah. There's resentment there. And so you really have to be careful with who you share your dreams with. Mm-hmm. 
and the type of feedback that you allow. Yeah. And you really have to think about what is this person's intentions? Are they asking these questions because they want me to be prepared for mm-hmm. my interview or mm-hmm. my bank loan? Yeah. You know, yeah, they're yeah. really just trying to make yeah. sure I've I'm on my game or are they trying to break me mm-hmm. and my vision down? Yeah. And so you really have to have some discernment about those conversations because yeah. a lot of people a lot of people don't want you to do what they haven't done. Mm, yeah. And and I feel like, too, at least in my experience, it's people trying to be helpful that don't, that aren't being helpful. Um, and so, especially just when I first moved here and I'm changing careers and I have ideas for things that I want to do and things that I want to see in the city, but I have no clue how I'm going to do it. That's always the question. Like, what do you want to do? Well, this thing well, how are you going to do that? Like, that's, that's like, that's hard there. You know, what are the steps that are going to take you there? I don't know. And so I learned what you're talking about very quickly of anytime I have a new project now, there's maybe two or three people that are going to know the details of that project because they're going to be helpful in saying, um, well, what about this? And, and what are the steps that we can do to do this? But, it, you know, they're helpful questions um, from people who, one, are willing to help mm-hmm. make that happen. Um, and then, two, are just kind of help you think through it and not just kind of word vomiting all of the questions that come to mind right off mm-hmm. the bat. Because it's like, that's not helpful. And I've told people, because I, I just started saying, um, you know, well, you'll see when it's done. Like, well, tell me, like, what are you doing? No, like, you don't need to know, like, what I'm working on until it's done. I also think that people underestimate the power of stating your intent. Mm. Because sometimes, and once it's happened to you, you realize that sometimes you're saying things because you know if you put it out there, eventually the right person is going to hear it. So you don't Mm -hmm. have the blueprint yet. You just know, I want to do a podcast. Mm-hmm. And if you're in the right room, someone's going to say, oh, I have equipment you can borrow. Yeah. And so this is why I'm stating this thing, mm-hmm. right? And you you understand that other people who may not have gone through that process don't understand that you can actually have a totally half-baked idea, yeah. <laughs> like completely half-baked idea and in the right environment with the right community if people think you're interesting enough to execute said thing, they don't care if you don't You've, you've never operated a microphone. Mm-hmm. They literally don't care. Yeah. They're suggesting, I have a friend that can teach you, or I have, you know, mm-hmm. and that comes together. But you have to be around those types of people that, people who really understand what it means to just wake up and want to do something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With literally no background in it yeah. and the audacity that you believe said thing will actually come to fruition <laughs> means you're slightly crazy. And so you kind of have to be around people who understand a little bit of crazy and aren't yeah. so much like, well, how are we going to pay this bill? And, uh-huh. you know, all of these these things that need to be, they feel need to be lined up before you do yeah. anything. Yeah. Because you'll never start. You'll Those questions will keep you. And the thing is you actually want to start as quickly as possible because you're going to fail. And yeah. so there's, that's where the whole concept of a fail fast comes from. Mm. And you don't know if something's going to work until you've started it. So if you spend so much time laying out this entire blueprint, the first step may completely redirect you yeah. because that didn't work. And yeah. so you've spent a year planning a thing. So it's better to just start with what is the one thing I can do now yeah. and then seeing where that takes you. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you can plan forever and... <laughs> it may not be viable <laughs> once yeah. you try to put it out. Yeah. And so that's why you just, but you have to, I feel like you have to be a creative or someone who is engaged creatively mm-hmm. to understand that that's just a different process from yeah. needing all of the steps laid out. Yeah. It's, it's a completely different process. And um, something that has always stuck with me, a good friend of mine, Matt Sheldon, told me um, a lot of times artists and creatives, like we have ideas but since they're not fully formed yet, we're kind of scared to put them out there because we know they're going to be, mm-hmm. you know, seen by other people and judged by other people. But until you put that idea out there, until you get that thing out of you, your next idea won't come because there's Absolutely. no space. Like you're just holding on to it. And so you have to just get it out, try it, and then 
if it works, great. If it failed, whatever, because now you you have room for that next idea to come in. There's a video. Um, it's an animation, but it's Ira Glass, the podcaster, mm-hmm. in the, his voice narrating. Mm. But he talks about taste. And so most creatives, you get into a game, photography, writing, initially because you have a certain taste level. You've observed photography that you are drawn to. You've, you've read writing that you are drawn to. And when you position yourself and become the writer or the photographer or the chef, there's a huge gap <laughs> between this taste that you've cultivated through consuming other people's work mm-hmm. and your actual output at the beginning. Yeah. And a lot of people quit. And so he talks about the only way to close that gap is to churn out work. Mm. And the, the beginning is going to be awful. Yeah. But you're never going to get to the good if you're not willing to make the bad stuff. Yeah. So make the bad stuff, have your friends read it, I don't know, put it on a blog that you delete later, yeah. <laughs> whatever you have to do, put it out and, you know, Google SEO eventually will work in your favor once the good stuff comes yeah. out and you just can't worry about that. Like you have to like in order to close that taste gap. Yeah. It's only through powering through work, mm. through creating that you're going to close the gap between yeah. the works that you ad- admire and the work that you actually can execute. And for a lot of people, I think that's paralyzing. Because mm. you're like, I suck. I suck. This is, yeah. I've written things where I'm like, this is horrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is horrible. <laughs> and that's fine. Okay, next. Yeah. Do I de- then yeah, you move yeah, yeah. on. At least I got the horrible stuff out of my brain because it was yeah. going to be in my brain. Obviously, it's I wrote this, so it was there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was there, and we needed to get it out so we can throw it in the trash. Yeah. yeah. And then you move on <laughs> to the next until you get you know, to a place. And that process, I probably, I mean, I'm only 36, but I imagine it's never ending mm. because... My taste is always, level is always heightening. Mm-hmm. So I think the gap never fully closes because even if your work has improved, you've probably, you know, leveled up your taste in some way. So you're constantly going to be trying to close that gap. Yeah. Always. It's just, it's always going to be that way. Yeah. Always. <laughs> All, and that's one of the things that bugged me about Fort Worth that still bugs me. <laughs> the question of taste. Mm. <laughs> but I, and just to kind of not that there has to be a positive spin on it yes. but I guess me not growing up here yeah. and coming here seeing those things developing mm-hmm. to me is very interesting and, and fun and I think I moved here at a good time where things are kind of starting to change and develop and things that I'm seeing and the people that are <clears throat> doing things in the city and doing things that I'm into and that I'm interested in and meeting people that I can learn from. Um, it's really interesting to see and to talk to people who grew up here mm-hmm. um, and that difference yeah. of what, how the city has always been yeah. and kind of at least being able to see the city's moving. Maybe we don't know exactly in what direction yet, but there are things that are changing and um, and there are movements that you can just see even within, you know, a year or two, um, things have changed and there's different kinds of people in the city doing different kinds of things that haven't been done here before. There's definitely, I mean, I kind of joked about the Bible study and coffee shop things, but when I was growing up, pretty much Starbucks that was inside the Barnes and Noble was the only place. So even just the ability, and even in the last two years, I think when I first got here, there was a VOCA, mm-hmm. right? And then the first Craftworks came, and then now I've got all these options, and you know, I have a couple of other friends that also freelance, remotely work, and so we do these coffee shop tours. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's great, because I don't know what where what I would be doing be in my house working all day by myself if that wasn't um and then the restaurant scene um you know magnolia all you know all of the typical things I think the only thing that frustrates me and so I'm okay with that so I don't think any of that needs to be cut at all keep mm-hmm. growing it's more expanding that to the size of town that I am from sure that I see that lack of of development mm-hmm. 
and culture. And we've seen it in, in every other city, gentrification in Brooklyn and these things. But I feel like the black communities there had such a... Like Brooklyn, West Indian culture is so... I mean, it's there. Yeah. And so you were always going to have the restaurants and have these things. And now they're sort of being co-opted. But I feel like the the footing was a bit firmer um, than we've had here. And so, like, I'm observing the near south side make its way underneath 35 to the historic south side. And, you know, I worry about the original culture um, of... The historic South Side. I grew up going to Mount Zion Baptist Church, which is right on the corner of Evans and Rosedale. Mm -hmm. It turned a hundred when I was eight, so that you know it's like super old now, yeah. hundred and twenty something years yeah. old. And it's like an anchor in the community. It's also a historic landmark. And so making sure as the new stories come, that the historical stories are still told and told by the you know the the people who mm -hmm. have lived them or lived in those neighborhoods. So that that's prob primarily um, my concern. I also, though, feel like with a lot of the new development, and I think this happens, and because I've seen this in Bentonville, Arkansas, mm -hmm. Birmingham, Alabama, a lot of the things we're doing are derivative. So, for example, one of the coffee, sh the coffee shop actually that inspired a couple of the coffee shops here is in Bentonville. But then if you ask those guys they kind of ripped off of whatever. Um, and so the derivative products of, de when you derive too much, I feel like mm. you end up with a lot of replicas. And uh -huh. so then nothing is original. Gotcha. You know, the reason why people love Portland is because it's sort of the birthplace of some of those mm -hmm. ideals and mm -hmm. aesthetics. And so it still is raw because yeah. it was born there. And then, you know, once someone's inspired by that and then, I think it gets, so I know sometimes people are like, we need to get away from cowboys and culture, but I think there is a way to infuse like the roots of Fort Worth into some of the newer mm -hmm. things, because that really is the delineation point between us and other Southern cities, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to lose that. And I don't know if you read the study last year, the city of Fort Worth paid a research firm to do this huge study, and it basically... The conclusion was that Fort Worth is at risk of being a suburb of Dallas mm. um, because more people live here than work here. And so that's one of the points between being a city. So you need employers, yeah. corporate headquarters, culture. And when people are moving to a place, they're looking, yes, for school districts and things like that, but they're also looking you know, for acceptance and, and different types of values and options yeah. in what they're going to consume. And so I think as we move forward as a city, that's something we have to really think very carefully about. But I think Fort Worth has a very unique culture. It just needs to be more inclusive. But mm -hmm. it definitely has some interesting differences from other, even from Dallas. Like, mm -hmm. I actually prefer, someone the other day asked me, would you move to Dallas? No. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, you know, I live in Sundance Square, which is great. I live in a loft. Um, so that's been an interesting experience. And being able to feel that energy of, you know, people in Fort Worth really are trying to do things, mm -hmm. especially the younger creatives. Um, I think it's a moment where we've self-included, decided not to flee. <laughs> and decided, you know, I can go to another city and benefit from the work other people have done mm -hmm. in those cities, mm -hmm. right? Or I can stay or come home and do the work on my own city so that the people after me have something they can benefit from. Yeah. So I, I see that with a, with a lot of people who've decided to, okay, I'm going to open my business or my restaurant here instead of doing the typical, you know, New York mm -hmm. LA thing. Yeah. So I'm hopeful. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Jonica, if people want to keep up with you or read some of your writings, where can they go to find you? So my website is my name, jonicareed.com. It's J-O-H-N-I-C-A-R-E-E-D. 
com, and on Twitter and Instagram, I'm first name club. So I'm just <laughs> at Jonica. <laughs> that's that's so unique. You get to just have no. Your I name. actually <laughs> have about almost ten friends that are in the first name club. <laughs> Jennifer, who's one of the co-founders of Away, the suitcases with the okay, batteries. Okay. My friend Lovey, that's an author. My friend Sl- yeah, there's a couple. But we're like Twitter OGs. Yeah. Um, and then, <laughs> funny story. I actually had to get Instagram to give me my handle from a nun. Oh, she so was she was like, inactive though. This was a oh, long time so ago. I don't even know if you could do negotiate. this anymore. But I no, I sent some emails to some people <laughs> and I, I got Jonica. So sometimes I feel bad. I was like, she was a nun. But um yeah. I mean, I didn't even know nuns were on Instagram. No, she was on Twitter too. Mm. It was interesting. Jonica de Amica, right? How okay. and she's like an Italian nun. What? <laughs> <laughs> now I want to go find I wish no, she was seriously. still active. She just set the accounts up but she wasn't using them, gotcha. which is why they like kind of released it to me. Yeah. But um, I had to go through some hoops to get that that first name. But um, it was very important to me back in 2008 or yeah, whenever I did yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got it now, though. Yeah, I got so it. That's I easy got to it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Janica, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you.